we all conduct it like it's Mahler too. I mean, it's great music, but it's not the central artistic utterance of humanity. That's today's guest, educator, author, and composer Travis Cross, telling us that perhaps one of our most celebrated pieces of band music maybe isn't all that great. Welcome to Music Ed Insights. I'm Alan Fire here with Steve Shanley. Each episode, Alan and I talk with national thought leaders in music education with practical insights for K-12 music educators. Steve, tell us about today's guest. Travis J. Cross serves as professor of music and director of bands at UCLA, where he conducts the wind ensemble, leads the graduate wind conducting program, and chairs the music department. He recently contributed to The Future of the Wind Band from GIA Publications. This thought-provoking book contains exchanges between leading wind band practitioners and music education philosophers, grappling with the most profound issues facing the music education profession and the path of music education in our schools. Find Travis's full bio, show notes, and resources at musicedinsights.com. What was a high point for you in this interview, Alan? I've always loved digging into the psychology of program order. And Travis has great thoughts about ways to craft an emotional journey through the order of pieces on a concert. What about you, Steve? So much good stuff in this interview and all very applicable to any teacher leading any type of musical ensemble. Near the end, he gives some extremely practical suggestions for engaging students and for making rehearsals more process-oriented. This is the second half of our interview with Travis, and although it stands on its own, we do encourage you to check out part one if you haven't already. Let's get to this conversation. Well, continuing with this repertoire discussion and then revisiting earlier the talk we were having about diversity, your chapter in Future of the Wind Band, you talked a little bit about commissioning. And the idea you gave was if all 50 states at least once or twice a year commissioned work from a non-white male composer, we would have X number. And if even just a percentage of those ended up, and I kind of liked how you admitted out front, we're going to swing and miss on things from maybe a commissioning standpoint. They're not all going to be masterworks, but maybe we'll, we'll get one or two or 5%. You know, ideally, we are giving great thought to what we program, and so we are weeding out anything that might not be great quality. But do you give our listeners permission to try some different programming things, and then maybe they realize this wasn't a great piece, but diversity is hard, and this is going to happen as a part of that process from the programming standpoint? You talked about it as it pertained to commissioning, but not really from a programming standpoint in the chapter. And... We learn and our students learn even if the music isn't great. I think that's worth everybody remembering that let's say you can put zero to 100, that there are pieces that are 100, best piece ever written, and there are pieces that are zero, you know, not worth the paper they're printed on. If you do a 30 or a 50, your students can still take things away from it. Generally, playing one piece that is not as good as the others is not going to make them worse. Playing all bad music, All music of little depth or low quality or poor craft will, over time, make students worse, like feeding them a diet of all junk food and empty calories. But as you said, you know, the number of clunkers written by straight white men, you know, we're kidding ourselves if we think that even our best programs are playing all pieces of the level of Mahler 1 and Mahler 2. They're not all that good. And so let's start by saying... Most of the music we play is not great, earth-shattering, artistic profundity. 
Do you include yourself in that? Yeah. 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 I mean, I love the whole first suite. I think it's a impeccably crafted piece by one of the great composers of all time. But folks, this is a nine minute miniature. On the things that he wrote that he would consider to be his great pieces, it wouldn't even be on the first page. So we all conduct it like it's Mahler too. But it's a nine-minute, seven-minute miniature suite. I mean, it's great music, but it's not the central artistic utterance of humanity. I put that out there as a way of first disabusing ourselves of the notion that the best music we're doing is perfect. Well, and to be fair, people like you in the Ivory Towers of UCLA directing the best concert bands in the world, it's typically people like you who are telling the middle school band directors, don't play such and such piece by such and such composer. I won't listen because it's not quality. You got to pick quality literature. That's the most important thing. Quality literature, quality literature. You, Travis Cross, Dr. Travis Cross, UCLA are, are giving us permission to knowingly perhaps pick music that is not of the utmost quality because it might check a box from a diversity standpoint and have enough percussion parts to keep everybody busy. You say that's okay? In a word, yes. In more words, I have a lot of opinions. I have a lot of values. I think my opinions are informed and valid, and I've come to them through a lot of experiences, but I can only make decisions for myself. And I think that anyone in the field, the ghost of John Philip Sousa himself uh, or Fred Fennell would not be well advised to say this is what your program should be because we don't know all the circumstances in your situation. I'm happy to share my values. I'm happy to say what I think works for me and what I think is successful, but you'll very rarely hear me say you should do this. You'll more often hear me say I believe in this. I try to do this because I don't always succeed at what I preach. I try to do this. I believe this is sound. Why not try this with your students? So that's thing one about just sort of, uh, I am suspicious of any colleagues I have who say there's one way to do it. It's my way. And everyone else who doesn't, that doesn't do it that way is wrong. Two, we come out of a period, the period that people of our age grew up in, where there was just a lot of really thoughtless shallow, non-serious music being played by school bands. So I think a lot of the, the sort of quality idea comes as a reaction to a perceived and real lack of that. So for people in positions of influence, let's say, to sort of push in the other way is a natural part of, of a pendulum swing to, to move things in the right direction. So I think that's the, the second thing. It's not fixed so much as it's a dynamic conversation. Third, then this is to answer your bigger question. I believe the quality matters. And I believe there is such a thing as quality. I don't believe there's music of yes quality and no quality. I believe there's music of degrees of quality. And there are different qualities for different things. I think that a really great K-pop song can have terrific quality, even though it's not the same qualities as a terrific uh, romantic symphony. They're trying to do different things. They have different mission statements, as it were, and they can achieve their mission thoroughly and completely, even if that mission is different. And one of the missions is something that a small band of inexperienced players can sound good on and feel good about 
and be successful. That's important. So we just vindicated a decision I made almost 30 years ago in the early 90s when I had a mediocre junior high band that I took the large group contest. Alan bangs and cargo shorts were never a good decision to validate. So we did address the Jesco to resolve that. I had a mediocre junior high band that I programmed for, for large group contest junior high highlights from the little mermaid soundtrack because there were triplets there were a lot of times when students had to watch because it was rubato because he transitioned from one selection in the medley to another there were some syncopated rhythms i had a real justification for taking that to large group contest and those judges totally poo-pooed me but i had a rationale and i what i'm hearing you say is i i did okay that I, sh- I should feel better about that decision alan mankin no slouch exactly right uh, let me say two things. First of all, The Little Mermaid is terrific music. And two, it is <laughs> cultural appropriation like we have never seen. So I think uh, on the programming standpoint, educational pedagogical programming, Alan, I hereby absolve thee. On the uh, cultural appropriation, that's a different topic for another day. But you bring up something, Alan, that I've never thought of before until just now, but I think it's actually a good idea. I think on your state contest ballot, on your sheet that goes to the judges, every conductor should have to give a one-paragraph explanation for why they chose the music. Yeah. A mission statement for the program, both artistic and pedagogical, because I think it's unfair for adjudicators to apply their mission statement entirely on the situation of every ensemble. Now, one reason you do have state contests is to uphold some sort of a universal standard. So I'm not saying that it should be just play whatever the heck you want, but I think that a conversation between the conductor, the teacher, and the adjudicators, a conversation by way of a brief explanation of the program wouldn't be the worst idea in the world. And To kind of go back to a bigger point about programming, I compare programming, and my colleague Emily Trine and I have done this in several presentations, to a menu, to creating a meal. Are you going to talk about how we can take the audience on an emotional journey? Because that is something you you mentioned in your chapter, and I was like, that's great. How do I do that? So if that could tie into this, this will be great. Yeah, I will will do my best to get there. Because I think that Certain pieces are like a main course protein. Certain pieces are like a dessert. Certain pieces are like uh, an appetizer. And if you serve only main courses, that's not a satisfying meal. If you served only carbs, I would enjoy it. If it were macaroni and cheese, mashed potatoes, scallop potatoes, and every other form of potatoes uh, with some rice, I would be happy, but I wouldn't be nourished. I would not grow healthy. So I think the issue about programming is I don't think there's ever a piece with very few exceptions that should never be played. But the problem is when conductors, when teachers program all cotton candy or program all ice cream. And my taste as a sixth grader might be, I like cotton candy. And part of the responsibility of the teacher is the person who chooses the menu, who feeds, who puts the food in the bowl, is to start working in some meat and working in some vegetables so that then by the time they're in high school, they're eating a more balanced, healthy diet. I think to make a judgment on someone's programming based on one piece or one concert even sometimes one season, is incredibly unfair. I think it's unfair to look at an all-state program and say, you didn't have X, X, and X. Well, listen, it's 25 minutes of music. It's going to be taught in two days. 
and I have to know how to get in and out of it all successfully. And there might have been pieces done the last year, the last three. There are all these other factors in the programming. So, so I think anyone who judges someone based on one program, not a healthy thing to do. Uh, you got to zoom out and look at the big picture. Now, as it relates to the menu, I think people want to hear a program. When they go to a concert, they want to have an aesthetic experience as an audience member. They want to go from a place to another place and to another place. That's what I mean by the emotional journey. And do you think this applies to a seventh grade band just as much as the UCLA band? I think to the extent that we can, people enjoy that. It makes the concert experience more fulfilling, and it's something we should try to achieve. That doesn't mean the concert is a night in old Mexico or around the world in 80 minutes, or something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. It's not like the concert has to have a titled theme, but it can have a shape and an emotional journey just by the energy of the music that happens. And that's, again, where I compare it to a meal. Almost every time you do a concert, you start with what kind of piece? Something faster, louder, exciting. Fair, yeah. Bring them in, draw them in. Exactly. Generally, you don't start with a ballad. You don't start with a slow piece. You don't start with a really thorny, atonal, difficult to listen piece. That's what I'm talking about in terms of emotional journey. People want to be grabbed as they come in. If you follow that big, fast, splashy piece with three more big, fast, splashy pieces, people will get fatigued by it. Their ears will get fatigued. And they'll get emotionally fatigued. So the reason to then follow it with a slower piece or a multi-movement piece, a dance suite or something, is out of this idea of emotional journey. So when I say that I think it's important for a program, to the extent that we can achieve it, to have an emotional journey, I'm not saying, okay, these next four selections are going to explain my position on the advancement of rights in America from the perspective of the marginalized. That's not what I'm talking about in terms of an emotional journey, although I love programs like that. I love programs that do that. I'm talking about something that goes from hot to cold with things in between, or from spicy to sweet to carbohydrates, or from loud to fast, soft to loud in a shape that makes some sort of sense. So when I talk about emotional journey, Steve, I'm that's what I'm referring to. It could be fast, slow, fast. But I think if we start to look for things in the the meaning of the pieces, connections between composers, connections between eras, you know, moving from large to small or small to large or old to new, there are other ways to make the emotional journey as well. And and that yeah, for us as conductors, music educators, that's a really great artistic venue for us to feel like we're still being creative individuals, even when we're doing our 30th, seventh grade spring concert. Well, and I liked your counter examples because I think a middle school band director, junior high band director might read that part of the chapter and say, well, yes, I would love to take the audience on an emotional journey, Travis, but I can't. They only know six notes. And I like that your point is it doesn't have to necessarily have a theme. We just need to give some thought to how it all goes together. And what you were talking about, fast, slow, loud, soft, all of that, totally doable with a beginning band concert or, or a middle school band concert. If you think of each piece of music as having a flavor, having a taste... You just don't want to serve the same flavor over over and over again. You don't have to be in a Michelin-starred restaurant to have a variety of flavors. You can be at a campfire cooking in the middle of nowhere and still have a variety of flavors. You know, I don't mean to you know imply that fifth grade band is like a campfire and 
the New York Philharmonic is like Le Bernardine, but to a certain extent, I think the metaphor holds. Even though you're dealing with five or six notes, even though you're dealing with limited range, limited instrumentation, limited length, the pieces are still going to have a different flavor. By changing up the flavors and by pacing the flavors, that's how you create the aesthetic experience. I'd like to conclude this part with another topic that you brought up in your chapter, and that was you encouraging the reader to be more process-oriented in our rehearsals. And it was the end of your chapter where you brought that up again. And I was thinking, awesome. Oh, wait, now I want to I hear. How do I do that? How does a middle school band director or, or choir director, orchestra director, what are some of your go-to suggestions for how someone can be process-oriented in their rehearsal and it, they don't have to be directing the, you know, a, a wonderful wind ensemble at UCLA to do so? Well, and listen, the better the group is, I think the less process-oriented you need to be. I don't think Gustavo Dudamel needs to be very process-oriented when he's conducting the L.A. Phil. Uh, he just chooses the music, gets up and waves his hands, and then tries to make it better by having exacting standards and a compelling vision. To a certain extent, choosing music because it helps students learn X, Y, and Z is the epitome of being process-oriented. But the quicker way I'll answer the question is just like when it comes to programming, I'm an and, not, or person. When it comes to process versus product, I don't think it's a binary choice. I don't think the choice is between having a very top-down, dictatorial, old-school process and a good product, or having a very enlightened, participatory, interactive process and then having a band that sounds terrible. In fact, I would argue that the best products come from a process that is enlightened and inclusive and involving. So that's the, the quick answer. I don't think it's an either or. I don't think that the best bands are the ones where you say, one, two, ready, go. Again, one, two, ready, go. I don't think that kind of process actually makes the performance better. Now, I'm also not encouraging everyone to rehearse every piece like it's the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra. I'm not saying, okay, we're all going to sit in a circle and let's have a discussion about how we're going to play beat one. So you find a balance. But when I talk about process, Steve, I'm talking about when I stop, instead of saying, you need to do this, can I say, this is what I heard, how would you fix it? Instead of stopping and saying, trumpets, you were doing this. What if I stop and say, can everybody hear what the trumpets were doing? Thumbs up if you think the trumpets are rushing. Thumbs down if you think the trumpets are dragging. Okay, looks like most people think the trumpets are rushing. Let's try it again, trumpets, and see if you can subdivide, focus on the pulse, and everybody else, we're going to listen and see if you're able to slow down the, the pulse, right? That's what I'm talking about in terms of interactive process. And what you gain from that, they're not just being told how to do it. They're learning how to fix the problems themselves. They're learning what to listen for and how to respond to it. So hopefully, if you teach that way over a period of time, when you finish concert one, you start concert two as a better band. I think if it's always do this, do this, do this, do this, I'm going to fix you, I'm going to fix you, I'm going to fix you, I'm going to fix you. You finish concert one, it sounds pretty good. And then you start concert two and you have to fix all the same things again. If instead of just giving them the answers, you ask them the questions and give them a little bit of space to process, I think they're going to learn how to 
teach themselves and to grow. And I think what they take away musically is going to be better. And I think what they take away, those of them that choose not to be musicians the rest of their lives, the life skills, professional skills, family skills, society skills that we talk about are also going to be stronger. That brings us beautifully full circle back to the beginning and sort of how I think you started your chapter with this acknowledgement that yeah, we're going to learn a lot of things in band that are going to make us better humans, society, and that type of process-oriented rehearsal, like you just said, we're developing these skills that we're going to apply to the rest of our lives. And I thought that was a really cool way that you started. And I feel like you used your yes and philosophy with that as well, because it seems like many are on the side of hey, it raises the test scores, therefore it's good. Or music is beautiful for its own sake. We shouldn't be bringing up whether or not it raises test scores. And correct me if I'm wrong, but my interpretation of how you opened your chapter was, why can't it be both? Exactly. I think if we go too heavily on the non, this is that Bruce Adolph quote I excerpted in the in the book. If we go too heavily on the non- musical things too heavily on the extrinsic, the side effects rather than the socio-emotional, artistic humanity things. When those things are, are not always proven to be true, we get in a jam. So I don't think we should focus too heavily on those things, but I also don't think we should ignore them because to certain audiences, to certain decision makers, those matter a lot. And by decision makers, I don't just mean principals and superintendents and school boards. I mean students in ninth grade trying to decide what activities they're going to do in high school to get into college. I think that having both of those things as part of your raison d'etre, as part of your mission statement, is healthy. I never turn down the help of a good argument in support of what I'm trying to do, even if that isn't my argument for doing it. The other thing that I believe in that's really process-oriented is I hope every time I stop in rehearsal, the instruction I give focuses the student's ears. That, I think, is the biggest investment I can make in the process of rehearsal. And this is because I saw Craig Kierkoff do this once with a, a an honor band that was not very good. But by the end of three days, they were pretty good because every time he stopped, every instruction he gave was something that made their ears perk up a little bit. He'd stop and say, tubas, can you lead? He'd stop and say, trumpets, can you fit your sound inside the horns? He'd stop and say clarinets, can you play that more like the percussion? He was giving instructions. He was telling them how to play. He was fixing rhythms and ensemble issues and precision, but he was doing it from the standpoint of who do you listen to in order to do that? They had to invest something. They couldn't just simply do what they were told. They had to take it a step further. Absolutely. And every time they did it, they got better at it. So he had to say it less and less because they did it more and more. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, though I think we could probably go on for hours and hours, and we're definitely going to have to have you back for uh, for some future episodes. But are you, uh, you willing to close down with the lightning round on some lighter topics? Let's do it. Favorite place to eat in Southern California? I'll give you three answers to that. One is to go into K-Town and go to a Korean barbecue restaurant and prepare yourself for the meat sweats. Uh, I've had two big birthday parties to celebrate my 40th and my 45th, and uh, I hosted those at a restaurant called Bestia, the 40th birthday party, and a restaurant, a David Chang restaurant called Major Domo uh, for the 45th. Those are both terrific restaurants for big groups with terrific food. 
A musical artist or piece of music that you wish more people knew about? Since the audience is band directors, music educators, and such, uh, I'm going to say Stephen Sondheim, the recently departed. People who know me know that I have a deep love for the musical theater repertoire. But if you haven't spent some time with Stephen Sondheim, uh, it's just music of such depth and such richness and such complexity and such beauty that there's always something more to discover there. Please give us a book recommendation that doesn't have anything to do with music or teaching. So this is going to sound a little trite, but there's a book that I read when I was in college called The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. Listen, it's not deep philosophy. It's not theology. It's not a moral guide to the universe. It is a beautiful story about following your dreams. It's a lovely fable. It's something that someone can read in a day or two. I think it's magical and lovely and humanity affirming. It's maybe like the Holst first suite, the equivalent. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> highlights from the Little Mermaid soundtrack. <laughs> Do you have a uh, hot take on UCLA and USC joining the Big Ten? I just hope I'm not going to a bowl game in Detroit on December 26th. <laughs> And finally, if you weren't a musician or teacher, what career do you think you would have had? I don't have a good answer to that question. People have said uh, many times, if there's anything else you can see yourself doing other than being a teacher, uh, you should do it. And there are people that say, if there's anything else you can see yourself doing other than being an artist or performing artist, you should do it. These are difficult jobs that lack uh, many traditional rewards, financial especially, that, that come with them. So they lack nights and weekends off a lot of times. They lack downtime. I've often wished I had a job where I could just clock out and go home and not worry about it. So I I can't really see myself doing anything other than what I do. And, and if I could, I probably would have done it and I probably should have done it. But I, I guess to actually answer your question, I think that journalism would be interesting, like long-form journalism, something where you have to research, learn about, immerse, talk to people, understand something, and then try to explain or offer a viewpoint on it. That's something that seems quite interesting to me, either that or running a K-pop social media account. Well, based on your writing in the future of the wind band, I again encourage all of our listeners to check that out. I have no doubt you would have found great success as a journalist and certainly uh, running social media for a K-pop band. Travis Cross, thank you so much for making all this time for us. This has been a fascinating conversation. Our listeners will love it. Thank you for having me. It's been uh, wonderful to talk to the two of you about some really important issues and uh, hope that the conversation goes on. You've been listening to Music Ed Insights. Please support this podcast by subscribing, rating, and reviewing it. We want to make this as thoughtful and practical as possible. Please send us your ideas for guests and suggestions for improvement. You can do that through our website, www.musicedinsights.com. You can also reach us on our Facebook page, Music Ed Insights, or via Twitter, at Music Ed Insights. Our web website is also the place to find program notes, links, and a one-page download of this episode's key takeaways. That's www.musicedinsights.com. This podcast is sponsored and supported by Normal Design, Winterset Websites, Group Dynamic, and the Co-College Music Education Program. Learn more about them at our website. And let us know if your business or organization would like to join that list. New episodes drop every two weeks on Monday mornings. Get current. Stay relevant. Music Ed Insights.